Welcome to America's Pal. I am your host, Darren White. This is the number one rated podcast being recorded in my man cave. You can find us everywhere podcasts like to hang out. That's Spotify, iHeart, Apple. You can find us on YouTube, America's Pal on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe there. You can find us. um, Well, we tried a few weeks back, tried uh, carrier pigeons to get America's Pal out there. And then the bird flu pandemic showed up and uh, 25 billion birds worldwide were being fitted with masks. Didn't work. They were having trouble flying. So then we figured we would switch over to carrier rats. Then all of the rats turned out to be in D.C. And uh, that didn't work out so well. So last week we tried messenger cows. And wouldn't you know it, Bill Gates does one of his synthetic beef ad campaigns. And at the same time, tens of thousands of cows wind up dead on the side of the road. I'm not really sure. It's kind of weird. But anyway, I am still blaming my executive producer, Mr. Allnut. He spent a lot of dough on ear tags, America's Pal branding irons. Mr. Allnut, that was just a complete waste of moolah. Hasn't gotten us anywhere, but we're still working on alternative methods to get America's Pal out to everyone that is available here in the United States. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iHeart. Follow us. Give us a five-star review on YouTube. Be sure if you follow us there, you can follow us there. Uh, look for America's Pal. Be sure to subscribe. Give us, a, give us a, us a thumbs up or two. Anyway, I'd like to apologize for missing last week. Had a unexpected uh, stomach a virus thing waking up in the middle of the night the night before broadcast and uh, realizing things aren't going well so had to take the week off that gave us an extra week to compile our news outbreak that we're going to get into shortly we're going to do a bonus round we're going to do two weeks of our weekly news outbreak before we get into all of that we have to go to yet another deadbeat sponsor. This week we got a brand new deadbeat sponsor. Might come in handy if uh, if you're keeping your clothes clean and pristine is important to you. We have our deadbeat sponsors because we still don't have any paying sponsors yet. But as long as we have me, I can make up as many dead spot deadbeat sponsors as we need. So. Take a quick break. We're going to go through our brand new Deadspeed sponsor for the week, and then we'll get right back into this week's topic. This portion of the program is being brought to you by Slick Willie's Stain Be Gone. Hello again, friends. It's your old pal from Arkansas, and I'm here to share a brand new product that just could save your career. That's right. Slick Willie Stain Be Gone is just the thing for you to keep your garments looking their best when you're on the go. If you're working late, you get a spot on your tie or some sauce on your fly. If you're under some stress and make a mess of a dress. If you're working hard for that dollar and get a smudge on your collar. If you notice a stain as your career circles the drain, then there's not a moment to waste. Order your very own Slick Willis Stain Be Gone. It's guaranteed to remove all traces of everything from marinara sauce to DNA. 
Its compact size means that it will fit nicely into the cigar box in your desk drawer. It's guaranteed to work on the most delicate of materials, including private jet upholstery, a famous rug in your office that's shaped like an oval, rich Corinthian leather, and all designer clothing. Every slick Willis stain begone comes with a legally binding non-disclosure agreement for you to use at your discretion, free of charge. Order your slick Willis stain begone today. It just may save your career and a bundle in legal fees. Welcome back to America's Pal. Let's dive right into this week's weekly news outbreak with a very special bonus round. Let me explain. There is no time. Let me sum up. From the Build Back Better desk, women nationwide are now facing a tampon shortage. Women's NCAA Division I swimming champion Leah Thomas stated that she consulted her gynecologist about the issue and was reassured that the supply chain shortage would not affect her testicles in any way. In Budapest, Hungary, two weeks ago, Katie Ledecky reclaimed her 400-meter title in the World Swimming Championships. Unfortunately, there were no men in the pool to put her back in her place. As stocks dip into a bear market, Dr. St. Fauci reassures the cult public that no actual bears were used in the NIH research laboratories in the U.S. or Wuhan, China. Only puppies. In a 5-2 decision, New York's top court determines that Happy the Elephant is, in fact, not a person. When asked, the severely conservative senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, decried the decision, stating, If I can be a Republican and a rhino, then Happy the Elephant is, in fact, a person. Heck, I have binders full of people that identify as elephants. Ford recalls 49,000 Mustang Mach-E electric vehicles due to potential power loss. Customers who called the Ford tech support were asked to go through rigorous troubleshooting, telling them to try unplugging their magic carpet and plugging it back in multiple times during the predictable upcoming brownouts. From the completely predictable desk, Dr. St. Fauci announced recently that he has COVID. He reassured his adoring fans, stating that his symptoms are mild and he will be back to creating brand new global pandemics in no time. When asked about rising inflation and fuel costs, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre explained the strength of Joe Biden's economy, saying, What we're trying to say is that the economy is in a better place than it has been historically. Everyone from 1929 shouted back, You're damn right it is! President Biden fell off of his bicycle this weekend, not far from one of his many vacation homes. When asked about the incident, Vice President Harris laughed awkwardly and said, Of course those aren't my wrenches. Whatever do you mean? Joe Biden hinted recently that he intends to run for a second term for president as long as it doesn't involve any bicycling. Apparently, running for president from your basement is easier than riding a bike. A crew from formerly funny man Stephen Colbert's Late Show was detained by Capitol Police after a staffer from Adam Schiff allowed them unescorted access to the Republican congressional offices for hours. 
When asked, Colbert stated, this is the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Liberals must have the right to trespass in the halls of Congress whenever they please. Ukrainian President Zelensky's weekly allowance was raised to a billion dollars two weeks ago after sending 10% back to the big guy. President Biden said that Zelensky is like the son he should have had. European scientists believe that they have finally discovered ground zero for the Black Death, a black bacterial plague that wiped out half of the world's population in the 14th century. Their claim places a source of the Black Death at the bottom of a bowl of bat soup in a wet market just outside of a medieval plague laboratory in Wuhan, China. From the Kung Flu Desk, the Federal Depopulation Agency, correction, the FDA has approved COVID vaccination for babies as young as six months old. When asked, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said that the federal government was thrilled to extend their global human experiment on a brand new group of involuntary experiments, potentially saving the lives of countless puppies and hamsters worldwide. In light of the upcoming Supreme Court decision that may reverse Roe versus Wade, baby formula giant Abbott shut down again because it's raining a lot in Michigan. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf stated that the federal government will continue to do whatever it takes to impede the survival of babies nationwide. The Ministry of Truth is back under a new and less dystopian moniker. The administration is calling the new state-sponsored censorship board a task force with Vice President Harris at the helm. When asked, the vice president said that she was very excited to get fitted for her very own pair of jackboots saying that she hasn't worn jackboots and leather since she began her career in politics. And now for this week's News Outbreak bonus round. Jeffrey Epstein's a longtime groomer who has been in a Brooklyn jail awaiting sentencing for her pivotal role in Epstein's network was recently put on suicide watch. When asked, Hillary Clinton said, Brooklyn? Really? I bet my gardener in Chappaqua could get there in under an hour. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade on Friday. According to sources within the Babylon Bee, the January 6th commission has taken a recess to start an actual insurrection. President Biden's stepson, Voldemort Zelensky, weekly allowance was cut in half last week as the U.S. is only sending him $480 million. When asked, Hunter Biden said that 10% for the big guy is still 10%. Treasury Secretary Yellen said that it is the Fed that is responsible for addressing inflation. When asked, she stated that the Fed will address inflation once they determine what inflation's preferred pronouns are. President Biden offers some relief at the pump by asking Congress to pause the federal gas tax of 18 cents per gallon. When asked, local mom Sandy Smith said she was excited to finally have the opportunity to fill up her tank and have enough left over to get a Slurpee and a mustard packet at her local 7-Eleven. And that sums up this week's news outbreak. Stay tuned through the break, and we're getting into this week's topic. We're going to bring up the big topic of the week, which is the Supreme Court that overturned Roe versus Wade. We're going to get into a bit of that conversation. So stay tuned for this next Deadbeat Sponsor Outbreak. This portion of the program is brought to you by Irish Winter Bar Soap. Winter is coming. 
You're going to need a bear soap strong enough for the winter, not the spring. I wish winter bear soap is strong enough to wash away a thousand years of battle. Lifetime of pestilence and plague will melt away. It will wash away famine brought upon you by a winter's icy grasp. Irish winter bar soap is made in a cauldron hotter than the very surface of a thousand burning suns not seen here in generations. It's made with the lie from the ashes of our ancestors who died in the battles of kings and emperors. And it's blended with the crumbled ruins of our castles from days long ago. Infused with the healing of the red clover, the bluebell, the mirror sweet, and just a dash of the poison of bog rosemary. Prepare for the winter with Irish winter bar soap. Strong enough to wash away the winter as you pray for springtime. Welcome back to America's Pal, the podcast. Today we're going to talk about the landmark decision of the Supreme Court overturning 50 years of legal precedent by overturning Roe versus Wade. This is not an easy topic for anybody to address, but it's an important one. It involves the soul of our nation, the psychology of our nation and where she's at. But we have to have a conversation. We have to avoid the hyperbole, the anger, the knee-jerk reaction to everything that happens around us. But we need to boil down what Roe Roe versus Wade was. Because Roe versus Wade became the law of the land through the Supreme Court, not through legislation, not through the will of the people. Roe versus Wade wasn't a, a democratically elected decision. 50 years ago, 1973, Roe versus Wade was a decision made by nine Supreme Court justices, justices that weren't elected. So Roe versus Wade essentially is the most undemocratic method of enacting a law. What did Roe versus Wade do? And that's that's the crux of it is what did Roe versus Wade actually do? It gets lumped in with a, with a lot of other hyperbole, a lot of other issues. It gets lumped in with women's health. It gets lumped in with women's rights. But it gets lumped in with all these other things so that if you were to overturn Roe versus Wade, the mentality of the people is, is that a whole host of other things disappear. But we need to get back to the beginning of the conversation. 
which is what did Roe versus Way actually do? It made it legal to end the life of a child. It led to decades of children that could have been. They could have been something great. They could have been something mediocre. But it, was, it became 62 million children that never existed. That is what Roe versus Wade was. Roe versus Wade was was to make it law that you could end the life of a, ch- a child. Again, this was not a decision made by the public. It wasn't made by the masses. And that's not how our republic works. So on the topic of whether or not or when it is appropriate to end the life of a human being, we have to have four conversations. We need to have the constitutional conversation about the laws. Where do our laws come from? How are they made? How are you willing to let laws be made? we got to have a political conversation because that's what perpetuates everything. The politics of abortion itself. We have to be willing to have that conversation. We have to have a theological conversation as well. It goes back to our, our founding it goes back to the principle of life, individual liberty. Where do those principles come from? And importantly, we really need to have a philosophical conversation to be willing to actually stop and think about the implications of what that law was. What any law is. To think about it, the impact of it, where it comes from. And how it affects society as a whole. So first, let's dig into the constitutional conversation. In the Constitution, there are certain things that are enumerated in the Constitution. Everything in the Constitution, it gives us our Bill of Rights. It gives us the, the initial articles of the Constitution say what the federal government can and cannot do. It establishes how elections are to be held. It, it establishes where the, how the president is to be elected, the qualifications of the president. It involves our borders, how we levy wars, and how the legal process, how our, our laws are made. Those are things that are in the Constitution. And then we go to the Tenth Amendment, and it says that anything that's not enumerated here in the Constitution shall be delegated to the states, the individual states. So if it's not in the Constitution, it is up to every state. At the time, there were 13 when they wrote this. We're now 50. You see, the idea behind that was that you could have a democracy. You could have 
that blanket of protection, that blanket of individual liberty, that Bill of Rights that gives each American some very, very specific rights. You could have all of those things and you could move freely between any state in the Union and still have that protection. But you see, the people in one state, their belief system, their demographics, their economics, they may not be the same as another. And the founders understood that there are different values for different people. People tend to move from one place to another. They, they, they congregate. They, they thrive with people of, of a like mind and all that. So you needed to have a place in the Union where you could enjoy that. And if it's not in the Constitution, it was up to every state to develop their own system of laws that fit within the parameters of the U.S. Constitution. Now, to make sure that those laws fit into the Constitution, we were split into three separate and equal branches. And I want to I I really lean into the separate and equal branches. Because for decades, the branches have, this, have had this imbalance of power. And I think the most important part of our government is the legislative branch. Those are the ones that determine the laws. And for decades, our legislative branch has made countless omnibus bills. They've made legislation that lumps pork into it. They're spending. There's, There's no single issue bills ever produced anymore. And what they do is... They write some laws, and then they defer to the Supreme Court. See, the role of the Supreme Court is not to make law. It's not to invent law. The Supreme Court is not even there to do what it feels is best for the nation. All the Supreme Court is there to do is to be a check on the legislative and the executive branches. Are your actions fitting within the Constitution? And it has long been a method of advancing laws extemporaneously, just around the Constitution, around the legal process, where rather than find consensus, they make laws, let the Supreme Court decide. And in especially recent memory, the Supreme Court has even tweaked some of these laws, changed a little bit of the verbiage so that it would fit into the U.S. Constitution. See, that is called judicial legislation. That's, that's where you get your activist judge that says, I can construe this and make it fit into the, the U.S. Constitution. That's not the role of the Supreme Court. And there are, there's a reason why anytime we have a Supreme Court nomination where there's a vacancy in the Supreme Court, there's a question as to which do you follow? Do you follow, are you an originalist? Or do you follow precedent? And I've always been concerned, anytime I, I hear a Supreme Court nominee and they say that they, they believe in the precedent of the courts before them, of the laws written before them. Well, many times... The court can get it wrong. 
And if you set the precedent, make the law, and then every law that follows behind that is now based on a bad law, it becomes a copy of a copy of a copy, where the image of the Constitution gets dimmer, it gets more and more faded, and we lose the republic that we have. The more and more diluted our legal system works and gets, the more we lose. See, in 1973, when Roe versus Wade was became our law, there was nothing in the Constitution protecting or abolishing abortion. And the Supreme Court, they did their legal gymnastics. They pulled excerpts from different articles, different amendments, and all of that, and they they did what they could to make it fit so that they could get a majority consensus allowing this. And essentially what it was was bad precedent. It wasn't constitutional to begin with. And we hear so many people today go, I don't care about the Constitution. Well, I ask, what, what kind of a country are we? Are we a democracy of feelings? Or are we a republic of laws? And too many people don't know that. Too many people don't know just the basic civics of how our government works and why it has worked. You see, a lot of people look back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a champion of the left. And she was. And she wholeheartedly supported abortion. She supported many, many, many of the, the, the liberal causes. But one of her best friends on the Supreme Court was Justice Antonin Scalia, who was an originalist. Antonin Scalia said that The Constitution is not a living organism. It's a legal document, and it says what it says, and it doesn't say what it doesn't say. And he and Justice Ginsburg would have tireless arguments as friends, debating countless topics. You see, Ginsburg, she also didn't agree with Roe versus Wade because she felt that it was the wrong way to go about accomplishing a goal that she supported. But she also supported the Constitution and doing it the right way. Her problem with Roe versus Wade is that it went about legalizing abortion in a way that put it in the hands of nine judges. And she feared that and knew that in years to come, it was it was subject to be overturned she see she preferred the way our founders preferred laws like this be be done she preferred that it start on a local level gradually and grow from there then move to the state houses and let the state decide individual states Build that consensus. This is the democracy at work that Ruth Bader Ginsburg agreed with 
and wanted. Because once you build a consensus and you use the democracy to build a law, then it has a lasting power that is very, very difficult to change. And that's where she and Antonin Scalise agreed. I remember growing up and the, the, the pro-lifers, they always, many of them had a problem with Antonin Scalia because he wouldn't, he wouldn't say or do something that said that abortion should be illegal. And he would go back to the Constitution and say, it's not in the Constitution. This has to go back to the states. And so many people on, on the pro-life side of the, of the conversation wanted him to use the court as a legislative branch. And it disappointed them countless times anytime he wouldn't do it. But he felt that he was bound by the Constitution and his role as listed in the Constitution is to protect the Constitution, not the feelings or the emotions of the crowd, regardless of what direction that crowd might go. Regardless of where his personal feelings might go. So, Roe versus Wade made into law almost essentially out of thin air, abortion, it made it legal. And if you just play the Supreme Court, then the Supreme Court could make it illegal nationwide as well. Because the role of the, of the Supreme Court is purely just, does this fit into the Constitution or does it not? And what people don't like is the notion that they have to do the hard work in a democracy. They call it a democracy, but it's, a, it's in a republic. But the, the most democratic way to make change, to make something happen, is you have to build a consensus. <clears throat> and that doesn't, that doesn't mean you, have, you get to just convince as many people to get to the polls, vote how you want them to vote, and then the Supreme Court will make those kind of decisions. No, you have to have those conversations with your neighbor. Democratically. This is what our Constitution was designed to do. It was to force the person, the individual citizen, to be a part of their government. Not put a vote, I voted sticker on your shirt, wave a flag, and say, I voted, I did my part, go home, wait two years, wash, rinse, and repeat. No. If you believe in something, if you truly believe in something, and you feel that the law of the land, nationwide, should include what you believe, then you have to do the hard work. You have to build a consensus locally and grow from there. It's the way all of the amendments to the U.S. Constitution have been. That's where they all came from. The good ones and the bad ones. Prohibition was in there. Look what happened when we had prohibition. And it took another amendment to repeal that. But the constitutional conversation about abortion isn't on the periphery. It's the most important one because so many people have forgotten 
what the role of the Supreme Court actually is. And they just want that that small group of people to side with them, to split on their side so that their team can win. And that's not how America works. That's not how a lasting republic works. And that's not how a civilized society works. Just look at the blood sport from the Supreme Court nomination hearings. Especially, go back to, go back to Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh. The circus that those hearings were. Why was it so important? Why couldn't, why couldn't one side trust that the, con- the Constitution was on their side regardless of where Justice Kavanaugh, potential Justice Kavanaugh stood? Why all the hyperbole? Why the mudslinging? Why the people breaking down the doors and barging in on the hearings? The Supreme Court is supposed to be as inconsequential as the legislative and executive branches are in your life, your day-to-day life. But you see, the reason why Supreme Court justices and their nominations every time there's a vacancy is filled is because people are desperate not to build their own consensus in their own community. They don't want to have the tough conversations, and they don't want to try and communicate without hyperbole. Because I could sit here and scream all day long about my point of view, and I could give you countless horror stories, and it'll go in one ear and out the other. Because nobody wants to hear my hyperbole any more than I want to hear theirs. See, the way our republic was built is that the American people don't communicate at the top of their lungs. It's in the whispers. It's in the conversations. It's the individual. We, we, we talk about Congress not finding consensus, that, that our bicameral system is it's, it's deadlocked, that nothing ever gets done in Congress. Well, nothing ever gets done in your community either. Because while Congress bickers, so do we. And Congress is the byproduct of you, of me. It's a reflection of our society today. So if nothing gets done in Congress, well, then whose fault is that? It's ours. Because we can't communicate or build a consensus any better than the people we send to Washington can do. Our state capitals. So the constitutional conversation is the, the primary one when it comes to this universal acceptance of abortion. The right to end the life of a human being, and when do we do that? When is it acceptable? But that level of hyperbole, it moves us into the political conversation. And this is one... that is volatile and dangerous and it's rife with the hyperbole that communication at the top of your lungs or the lack thereof stems from the political conversation 
You see, when you move into politics, when it comes to any kind of a policy, one that's important to you, one that's important to me, or the opposite of what you believe, once you move it into the realm of politics, then hyperbole becomes the solution. Hyperbole is what draws people to the polls, drives them there. If I don't vote for this candidate, then I'm going to lose my Social Security. Or if I don't vote for this candidate, if I don't get to, get, uh, to, to the polls in time, if the pandemic keeps me from the polls, then the sea levels are going to rise. The politics show signs of just mindless blood sport. There's no real policy ever discussed. When was the last time you saw any actual policy discussed in a presidential debate? When do you actually see any policy discussed anywhere? So politics itself, the conversation of politics, is one that doesn't get anywhere if the politicians that we send to Washington reflect us. And the politics of abortion is where the message, where where what abortion actually is, gets lost. And yeah, I can can share with you slides, images, pictures of what happens during an abortion. See, they didn't have the ultrasounds, the technology, the 3D imaging back in 1973 of when a child can feel pain the ability to perform a surgery in utero. They didn't have any of that at their disposal. So back in 1973, it was a lot easier to disassociate a fetus. And if you start calling it a fetus and not a baby, well, then it's a lot easier. Because then you can just imagine it as some sort of a parasite. But we get into the politics of abortion. And what happens with that? The message gets lost. Your message. It becomes rah, 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 absolute, one way or the other. And if you don't pour your money into a certain campaign, you see, on both sides, abortion in my entire life and for the past 50 years, the reason why it was never challenged in the Supreme Court, we've had 50 years to either challenge it or make it a law to amend the Constitution. The reason why that was never done is because it's a wedge issue. It's a divisive issue. And the thing about these wedge issues in politics is that the wedge itself never gets addressed. It's just what drives that wedge that's always addressed, and that's chock full of the hyperbole that we see today. But the fact of the matter is, is the conversation that has to be held is what is an abortion? When does life begin? And when is it appropriate to end it? You see, we look at the politics of everything, and we're going into a midterm election. We're not going to have any conversation about this. We're all just going to continue to yell and scream and 
throw the worst case scenarios out there. Everything, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. No policies are going to, going to change. The pro-abortion group is not going to get any advancement, and nor is the pro-life group, and nor will there be consensus found, because that's the whole design of politics, is don't get down to the basic, the basic issue of the topic that drove everybody to the polls that drives them there, because as soon as they figure out, as soon as you come up with a solution, your politician isn't that necessary anymore then they have to find a new wedge issue. Right now, the wedge issue that's directly related to the right to have an abortion nationwide is one that is would be completely destructive to our republic. They want to, they're, they're threatening to pack the court. They're threatening to pack the court. So we have nine Supreme Court justices. We've had five and six justices in the past, but never more than nine. They want to do 12 justices, 13, 15, and have them appointed all based on their ideals. And here's the problem when you make a political decision to enact a policy that's not in the Constitution. It always circles back. You look at the nuclear option when um, Harry Reid changed how Supreme Court justices get get approved. You see, it used to take a 60% majority in the Senate to fully nominate a Supreme Court justice. Harry Reid found a loophole in their tradition and invoked the nuclear option. So Harry Reid, Democrat leader of the Senate, invoked the nuclear option, went back to a simple majority. And everybody said, yay, democracy, yay, democracy, yay, democracy. Well, that was during the Obama administration. And that's what brought, I believe it was Kagan, and got her nominated to the Supreme Court because they were able to do it with just a simple majority instead of the precedent of the the 60-senator vote. Well, what happened? Instead of the next term, everybody was fully expecting that Hillary Clinton would be the president of the United States and that there would be more Supreme Court vacancies available and everything was fine because the nuclear option was safe. They could reshape the court for the next several decades. Then the unthinkable happens, and Donald Trump becomes president, and he says... On the campaign trail, and I, I don't, I'm not a rah-rah, one particular person, one political salvation over another. But one of the things he did say was that he would nominate Supreme Court justices that would look at the constitutionality of Roe versus Wade. And guess how all three Supreme Court justices were nominated? You can thank Harry Reid. They all got through on a simple majority. And at the same time, okay, the, 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 the right-hand side of the aisle was saying, you asked for it, you got it. Here's the nuclear option. Here's three new Supreme Court justices. They lean towards the conservative side. Kavanaugh is not one that I, I typically support because 
He's a precedent kind of a judge. He follows precedent over the original doctrine. But three Supreme Court justices in one term using the nuclear option, and now the left is screaming that this is the death of democracy. Well, you don't get it both ways. You don't get to change a policy and say, yay, democracy, we got a Supreme Court justice nominated. And then when the other side uses your method, your political method, your political parlor tricks, you don't get to say it's the end of democracy. Because the fact of the matter is, is we're not a democracy to begin with. That's a political wedge issue. So if you want a more democratic method to enact laws, what the Supreme Court did last week was exactly that. It took the power out of the Capitol. You see, the entire nation didn't lose the right to end the life of a child inside the womb. Some states might. Other states are going to expand that because the the U.S. Constitution cannot abolish that either. So states like New York and California, Virginia, I don't know if you remember the former governor, governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, before he termed out, there was a conversation on abortion, and it was a conversation on post-birth abortion. And he went on the radio telling the state of Virginia and the world that if that child survived an abortion, they would make the child comfortable. The mother and the doctor and a psychiatrist would have a conversation. And that would determine whether or not that child would be left to die or go on to live. There are going to be states all across the nation. They're going to make that a, that a possibility. Then there's going to be states that say no life begins at conception. Therefore, we cannot endorse or make a law allowing abortion of any kind. The morning after pill to up to six weeks, 15 weeks, whatever, they they will be outlawed completely. And you know what's going to happen in, in both of those states, both of those kinds of states, you know what's going to happen is that the people that live in those states are going to have to have start having conversations with each other and say, I really think that there ought to be an exception to this in, here in, uh, I believe Mississippi is one of those states that's it, it's, it's got a trigger law that's going to ban it completely. Okay. Well, if the state of Mississippi, the people that actually live in Mississippi, say, look, no, 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 I can't support anything past a heartbeat. Then the people that live in, in Mississippi can have conversations with people on both sides, and they'll find a consensus that way. And then Mississippi will amend their law banning it all outright if they choose to, if the people of Mississippi do so. Now in California, let's say that it only goes to eight months, not quite full term. But the people in California say, no, 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 we we really believe that if it affects the psychological health of the mother and she decides to have an abortion at eight months but the baby manages to survive, we feel that she should still have the right to terminate the pregnancy outside of the womb. 
you can't tell me that there's not enough people in California that would support that. And California, in turn, will adjust their abortion regulations to allow for that. See, this is the democratically elected republic that we have. Every state has the opportunity to make decisions on their own. If it doesn't fit within the Constitution, if it's not forbidden by the Constitution, if it's not prohibited by the Constitution, then the people of that state have the right to do as they please when it comes to these topics. But politics is the easy way out. It's just, I don't have to do anything. As long as I get the right president, I get the right majorities and the right groups, and then we get the right number of judges, then I don't have to participate in my government in any way apart from donate here, donate there, go to the ballot box every two years, cast a vote, make sure I yell and scream, and that's that. Buy the t-shirt, do it again. So the political conversation about Roe versus Wade is completely lost because we're not talking about abortion itself. The act, the physical act of abortion, we're not talking about that. We're talking about all the periphery. Some people are spiking the football, enjoying this, dancing up and down, when there's a lot more work to be done. But see, now the work is the difficult work. That work is local. You now have to behave like you live in a republic. You have to behave like it is up to you to change law. Because we are a nation of laws. We're not a democracy. If you want a democracy, go back to 1799 France. Worked out real well. So we have the political conversation that's not happening about the, the original wedge. Then we have the theological conversation. And here's where people tend to get lost in the weeds when they, they, they keep decrying the separation of church and state. Well, what does church and state have to do with whether or not and you can end the life of a baby? And at what point do you do that? What does a church and state? You see, there is absolutely nothing in the United States Constitution that says, uses the term separation of church and state. The law says that the federal government cannot establish a state religion. One in, one in particular. And then govern thereafter using the state religion. You see, our founders, they knew something about theocracies. The pilgrims fled England due to the British theocracies. And see, over time, the theocracies change. One day it might be the Pope that runs everything, and the next thing, thing you know it might be King James who's decided he runs the, the Protestant faith. And then everybody is required to practice exactly that, that typical kind of faith based on whichever theological whims might strike who's, whatever tyrant is in charge of the country at that point in time. Our founders knew the dangers of that. But they also knew the values of the Christian faith. Go to Patrick Henry one of the ratifiers of the United States Constitution. He was the one that said, give me liberty or give me death. 
Patrick Henry says, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. This is what the U.S. Constitution wanted. They did not want a theocracy. They didn't want one particular faith, not of religion. See, you, can, you have to separate religion. You can't have a state-sponsored religion, but you cannot take our founding. You can't take the principles of our government. They were all based on a biblical worldview. All of the laws, our Constitution, were based on fundamental rights found in the gospel and throughout the scriptures. There's countless writings from all of our founders speaking to this very topic of the importance of faith, of the gospel, and government. So we're not a theocracy. Those that claim that we are are sadly mistaken because they're back on the political bandwagon of using that level of hyperbole to say, oh, we're going to be a theocracy and everybody's going to have to be a Christian. They're going to have to be baptized and all of our laws now, you're going to have... No, no, no. Is it in the Constitution? Then absolutely not. The final thing that we need to talk about is that we need to have that philosophical conversation about what, what abortion actually is, what Roe versus Wade was. And again, Roe versus Wade said that the federal government endorsed abortion, ending the life of a child inside the womb. That's all it did. And it did it unconstitutionally. But what's happened since 1973? Do you want to actually take an honest look at our society and the value of human life? See, post-1973, it seems that a child was either a burden or an accessory. And you could dispose of it whenever you wanted. What, what kind of a society do we have when children are raised knowing that they didn't matter? that they were a mistake, a mistake that could easily have been corrected. Imagine psychologically thinking that, well, maybe they should have. Maybe they should have ended me. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe, it would be, maybe they would be better off if I wasn't here. You see, Bill Clinton said that uh, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And that was how he coalesced the evangelicals and the left around his stance on abortion just 30 years later safe, legal encouraged, repeated 
It's a convenience thing. What does the maternal role of a of a mother do? How does she move on with the mentality that a child is disposable? Where does where does where does the nurture come from from the mother? The paternal responsibility of the father is that diminished over the past fifty years? Where are the fathers these days? They've been replaced with subsidies. They've been replaced with punchlines. They've not been held accountable. And they encourage the same loss of life to make life simpler for them. What kind of a society do we have? That human life is disposable. Imagine the narcissism, narcissism of a society and how each generation since 1973 has become more narcissistic than that of their parents. And it devolves and it gets worse and worse. And human life means less and less and less. Human life means so little that it it can be ended the day after conception. And then you can seriously have a conversation about whether or not you could end it after it's born and justify that. So I'm not here to say when you should end a life. My personal belief is that life begins at conception. But at the same time, I can observe a society now that we have children killing children. And why doesn't the life of their classmate mean any more to them than their life meant to you? They're disposable. How many generations today have been raised by their grandmothers, not their mothers? It's common in culture. What does that do psychologically? psychologically to a child and then that child grows to be an adult and says well if mom didn't care then neither should I the thing is is that they always do it bigger every generation does it bigger than the one before them and we wonder why these horrible horrific things keep happening with more repetition these days And it begins in our society at the value of individual human life. So we're to a point now, philosophically, is what direction do we want to go? Because every state is going to have to make, to make that decision on their own. What direction do we need to go as a state? Philosophically, I think it's a, good, it's a good opportunity for the people of every community to build a consensus, not one of hyperbole, but of principle. Set aside the Molotov cocktails of politics, of hyperbole, of anger, that pure liquid democracy 
that always devolves. Let's learn what's what's in our Constitution, in our Republic, what kind of a country we were handed. And how do we build consensus in our community? And believe me, if California wants to do the things that California wants to do, then go right ahead. I live in the free state of Florida. And Florida will make those decisions based on the population of Florida. California doesn't get to make decisions for Florida. Mississippi does the same thing, and New York doesn't get to tell Mississippi how they're going to Mississippians how they're going to live their lives. People in Delaware don't get to tell people in Arkansas how they're going to live their lives and where their stand on abortion is going to be. But the conversation, if you want to learn how to value human life, it begins in the womb. We've all seen the images. We've all seen the videos. We all know the process of an abortion, of the ending life. The question is, and will be moving forward, where it finally should have been all along, is at what point does life actually begin, and when are you comfortable ending it? We've got one more Deadbeat sponsor break, and we'll wrap things up. This portion of the program is brought to you by Florida Man Adventureland. If you're a Central Florida native and you're tired of all the theme parks built for the out-of-towners, then Florida Man Adventureland is the place for you. It's a theme park built for the Florida Man by the Florida Man. If you think swimming with the dolphins is for chumps and you can swim with the alligators at the Florida Man Lagoon, Fully stocked with gators big enough to take more than a dollar's worth of hamburger off of you. If you dabble in off-label chemistry, then be sure to experience our immersive Stump the Dentist experiment. If firearms suit your fancy, then check out the Florida Man Shooting Emporium. You can take a shot at a wild pig or of a rival gang from our authentic 1996 Chevrolet Impala. Forget all those butterfly encounters. We got a mosquito encounter that will knock your socks off. When you get a path of thirst and a path of hunger, then don't miss out on our bath salt buffet. It will expand your mind. The mouse might have a Chewbacca, but we got our very own skunk ape experience. Try to find him just after our lunch at the bath salt buffet. Don't waste time with a mouse, the whale, or a hook. Jumpstart your pickup and get down with us at the Florida Man Adventureland, located just east of East Orlando. Welcome back. That's going to do it for this week's episode of America's Pal. As we close, I just I really want to re- reinforce... The constitutionality of what happened this week. How important the Constitution is. But the focus of the conversation is back where it really should have been all along, which is when does human life begin? 
And at what point is your community comfortable ending one? Because you see, societies throughout history have always been on a, on a pendulum. And they swing drastically one way or another. And they'll swing one direction and it's completely destructive. And it cuts deeper and deeper and then it swings to the other side. But throughout society, the pendulum always ends up finding a balance. And I believe that our nation is at that point where we can find that balance. The pendulum is swinging and it's, it's difficult to, to accept when the pendulum swings away from you. And then it's easy to quickly embrace when it swings towards you. But if you're not looking for the balance, and where is the balance? But have a rational conversation about the specific topic. This topic is the most sensitive of our lifetime. But it's a conversation, and it will be back to when does life begin? When is your neighbor, when is your community comfortable with ending it, if at all? But above all, what is the value of human life? Tune in next week. We'll get back together. We're going to do another weekly news outbreak. But until then, we'll see you in the funny papers.